Hello and welcome into episode 15 of All In with Adam. I'm glad you guys are here. Sorry for taking last week off. It has been uh, it's been very busy, busy around here. Sort of a self-inflicted busyness, doing a whole lot of home projects and trying to catch up on a lot of things since the wedding trip. But yeah, here we are. And this is a this is an episode I wasn't sure that I was going to do this soon. Uh, this episode is on um, reintroducing alcohol into my life, and I suppose. I would, I would imagine that this episode is going to attract a good amount of people who are considering drinking again after being sober for a while. Because I've been that person. You know, I toyed around with the idea of drinking again for at least six months leading up to my wedding. And I did drink at my wedding, but it was not taken lightly. It wasn't something that I, um, that I did sp- spontaneously. I definitely put a tremendous amount of thought into it first because I didn't want to just... I don't know. I didn't want I didn't want to take it lightly. It didn't feel like it should be taken lightly. And so over the last 6 8 months or so, I had definitely googled many times what's it like to drink again after being sober for about 10 years. And so if you found this video, I think there's a high likelihood that you know, maybe you're in that position. So I want to tell you guys a few things about what I'm going to do in this episode to save you a little bit of time. First of all, if you're not a regular listener of this podcast and you just want to get some quick information about this topic, I'm going to timestamp the entire podcast uh, down in the description of this video or of this podcast. So head there if you want to skip around and and uh, head to some of the the finer points of this conversation. Um, and I also want to clarify that, you know, it's not my goal to offer anyone that I don't know, like a long list of justifications or reasons why it's okay to drink again. You know, I'm a philosophical individualist. And when it comes to whether or not you should drink again, if you find yourself looking for shit on the internet, you are going to find nothing that gives you a clear answer. That's not how this works, right? It is it is a deeply personal decision. Whether or not you're an alcoholic is really a personal decision. It's oftentimes, you know, self-diagnosed. And I, I just want to be very careful with an episode like this because I don't want to be misleading um, or or put anybody in a dangerous position. You know, I, I know what it's like to to be inspired from a podcast or to hear something and think, man, that makes a lot of sense. That's what I'm going to do now. And given that I don't know your particular circumstance, you know, I really just want to clarify and make sure uh, everybody understands that this is not this is not medical advice. <laughs> That's for fucking sure. Um, and it, it's certainly not not customized to you. It's more so. I hope you look at this as an opportunity to 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 treat me like the guinea pig, right? Like I ran the test. I'm running the test, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I'd like to uh, offer as much information and insights and, and thoughts as I can about this topic and treat it with a level of seriousness that I think it deserves. Um, because as I've talked about in a number of other podcasts on um, on this platform, you know the the bottom of that pit of addiction of alcoholism specifically is one I've I've been to. You know, maybe not as far down the pit as you might have gone, but uh, it sucks down there. It's it's some bullshit. So. Let's uh, let's not go back there, and let's um, let's pause on this this weird part of the journey that we happen to be on, and, and have a discussion about it. I think, if anything, that can just be um, insightful for people that are considering reintroducing alcohol into their life. Now, to tell you a little bit about my background with alcohol, you know, there there's three hours um, of podcast episodes on this channel, if not more. Maybe it's closer to four hours in total. Um, those three episodes are called. 
Um, addiction, rehab, and recovery. So if you want my really detailed backstory, that's the place to go. Uh, I, I did a huge deep dive on a lot of addiction psychology and my own personal experience uh, in relationship to alcohol. But to give you a, a, a really brief summary, you know, it, it was always bad. I started drinking alone when I was 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. By the time I was in high school, it was full-blown party mode. I had never learned how to use the tool that is alcohol. So I never had a period um, where I was showing any level of restraint. It was pedal to the metal the entire time. And by the time I was 21 years old, uh, I was in a party environment. I was in a band. And it just got the best of me. You know, once I, you toss in a, a rough breakup and an existential crisis and a shifting belief system, you know, all of a sudden I found myself physically addicted to alcohol and I really didn't have any way to manage my life without that tool or that crutch. So I elected to go to rehab at age 21, um, and that was just under 10 years ago. So I, if I say 10 years, it's because it was you know, I was sober uh, closer to 10 years than to nine years, but it was like nine years and eight months or something like that. And I'm not one to get hung up on the time. You know, that would have been kind of a cool factor, I suppose, to actually make it to the 10 year mark. And, you know, I never really liked that part about AA doing the 30 day chip or the one month chip, sort of the like, it's a way to say it, like getting trophies along the way. Like to me, that never particularly mattered. It, it, my happiness mattered a lot more. My day-to-day -day contentment mattered a lot more. I could give a shit less if it's been 30 days or 10 years or 40 years or, you know, how I feel on any given day is significantly more important than how long I manage to white knuckle sobriety. And, you know, if there were slip ups along the way, I really don't care. Like as long as I'm, I'm in route to contentment, in route to some version of happiness or nobility or achievement or stability or, you know, whatever word you want to put in there. So the time thing never really bothered me. Um, now, the reason that I stayed sober for 10 years, um, nine years, eight months, was really because, you know, th there's an element of fear. You know, when you go to rehab, you are, you're told pretty explicitly that alcoholism is a disease, that you have a disease. And there is some truth to that, some, but I've learned that it is infinitely more, more complex than that. It's a really, really nuanced, nuanced idea. And to me, it's never been that simple. Even in rehab, I always had a, somewhat of a skeptical attitude towards the concept that I have a disease. Now, I always was willing to admit, or at least concede that, that something is different about me that maybe maybe this could be explained purely from a neurological or a neurochemical perspective that my brain and my body have a reaction to certain substances that makes the experience from that su substance significantly more enjoyable that was always that always seemed likely to me and if you're someone who has ever struggled with with drinking you know just consider that that you might be at merely a neurological disadvantage in that being drunk is just fucking awesome for you. And perhaps it's more awesome than it is for other people that, that you have a unique experience. This does seem to be the case with a lot of drugs that people just have, have different experiences on them. Um, and maybe you got air quotes lucky that, uh, that your experience with alcohol just happens to be particularly killer. You know, I've always wondered if that was the case, but, but classifying that 
as a disease seems like a bit of a stretch to me. And so I've been skeptical of that concept um, ever since I went to rehab and I was first introduced to the idea that alcoholism is oftentimes described and treated as though it's a disease. But regardless, I was still left you know, after rehab with this reality that despite having an opportunity to control my relationship to alcohol, I failed, right? I mean, I did have the opportunity to not go, to try stopping drinking alcohol on my own, and I didn't do it. But when I look back at who that person was, I sucked at a whole lot of things. And so if you're someone who is let's just say considering drinking again after a certain period of sobriety, I think taking a, a real serious inventory of who you were when you were drinking, when it was, was truly problematic, and who you are now, I think having a, a really clear perspective on who those two people are is really, really important. And that might be a very uncomfortable truth because you might realize that you're not that far removed from that person. Maybe you are in some ways, but not in some others. Again, this is all you shit. I can't possibly fill in those blanks for you, but I will speak to some of the differences um, in, in my own life, um, the positions that I was in, the perspectives, philosophies, and beliefs that I had about myself, about the world, about my relationships, about my value. You know, Many of these things have been totally transformed, and I think that's a really, really important part of this. But let me not get ahead of myself here. Um, I wanna start out with with some of the reasons why this even came up, you know, why I considered drinking again after, you know, having alcohol removed from my life for such a very long time. Alcohol was always my favorite drug. I'm still a drug nerd, right? Like I'm, I'm still a fan. Um, and of all the drugs that I had ever tried in my entire life, al alcohol was the only one that I loved enough to, to abuse, right? And you have to remember it, that's rooted in the fact that I like doing it. Like, it, yes, it, it resulted in misery, but that's never how it starts, right? So alcohol has always been on some relative pedestal for me as it's always been my favorite. And when I think about an event like a wedding, like a thing that in theory you do one time and one time only, you know, it, it feels appropriate to do all of your favorite things, right? Like restraint on a day like that doesn't necessarily feel like the right way to behave. Um, but one thing I had made peace with in deciding that I was gonna drink at, at the wedding was that if this is a standalone event, if this is something that I do only one time on this day, that I'm okay with that, that, that I'm not saying I'm opening the door and leaving it open necessarily. If I need to slam the door closed again, I don't think I'll have a problem doing that because I've got 10 years of sobriety under my belt, 10 years of, of not drinking. I'm not scared to go back there. If I go back to being the guy that doesn't drink, well, I'm not particularly bothered by that. I think that's, um, that's okay. I certainly know what that's like. So it was a very special event and you do a whole lot of things that you don't do any other day. So, you know, it, it did seem like a, like a fitting, fitting day for it. You know, and I had also, I had always told myself in rehab, you know, they tell you one day at a time, right? And I do believe that that's the way to look at it for sure. Um, but for me, I had never once made a commitment, even in my own mind, that I would be sober forever, that I would never drink alcohol again. Maybe somewhere buried in my psychology, that was like a loose plan, but I had never conceded that to the universe, right? I had never actually said, I'm just gonna be sober forever. The option was always there. It was always there. For 10 years, it was always there. And it would be, 
you know, maybe I'll drink tomorrow, but I'm just not drinking today. And then I strung together, you know, a few thousand days like that. And I don't intend to say that this was on my mind all the time. You know, you do reach a point of mental stability where alcohol is something that is like a very faint memory. You don't wake up and think about it all the time. It's a lot like like a relationship. Once you have the breakup, sure, you think about that person for quite a while, but you're, you find a homeostasis in your psyche, right? Like you balance out. It's not something that you think about very often. Now, another huge reason that I wanted to try this out is because I feel like I have a really large collection of tools, life skill sets, life tools. I feel like I have a large collection of those that I didn't have at all when I drank before. You know, and, and let me give you some examples of what some of these life skills might be. You know, a, a good example might be something like, like self-discipline, right, in any particular area, a workout regimen, uh, maintaining a specific diet, let's say, and, and here's the weird thing, right, it's not just life management skills, but also like the, the accompanying belief that is behind that skill, right? So for example, Self-discipline is like a top-end behavior. You can amend your self-discipline. You can choose to become more self-disciplined. But I also believe that this is where this is where psychology intersects with philosophy because it's also important that you know why you believe self-discipline is important. And you have to live within the domain of self-discipline to get a good grasp on what it actually does. Why is self-discipline actually important? And the more articulate, the more the more experienced your answer is, you know, the more likely it is that self-discipline is going to become easy for you. It becomes natural because it's not just something that you that you choose to implement. You know, the belief structure that is behind the idea of self-discipline is also solidified. And so for me, not only has my my life changed because of my behaviors, because of my habits, because of different life skills that I've built, but I also understand why I believe them. And so not only have I have I shaped up my my psychology and some of the behavioral front end stuff, but I, I've also done my best over the last 10 years to explore why it is that I believe the things that I believe. And that that's everything from unpacking my my own values to, you know, exploring much more specific concepts uh, like marriage and children and family and career, right? Like, like work ethic, morality itself. Like as you unpack all of these topics and you find where you stand within all of them, the way that you behave on the front end, your behaviors are, are better supported, right? It's a, lot, it's a lot more difficult for me to lose self-discipline because I have a belief structure about why it's so fucking important. It's not just something that I'm white-knuckling or forcing upon myself. Um, I believe it all the way down to the core. So I'm using self-discipline as a specific example, but there are many others like this. And so when I say I'm a different person, you know, now from the person that I was 10 years ago, um, I'm different in in so many incredibly important ways that it feels like I'm not even running the same test anymore, right? So the question would be, are there alcoholic parts of me left over in here still that cannot combat with the air quotes disease of alcoholism? Or is it possible that the tools that I've acquired over the last 10 years, whether philosophical tools, belief structure tools, um, psychological tools, 
life management skills? Like, is it possible that everything that I have can compete with whatever part of me uh, remains to be an alcoholic? Again, all of this is in air quotes. But, you know, this was a test that I really wanted to run. I wanted to run this test on myself um, and just see, see how this played out. So when I drank at the wedding, it was, uh, I started with a whiskey. For some reason, that sounded like the the drink of choice. Um, And I'll tell you the very first thing that I noticed. I noticed that there is this weird relationship, almost like a ratio, between, you know, the amount of alcohol that you drink can facilitate conversation, obviously. And so the conversation gets smoother and easier and more fluid and a lot looser, and that was really enjoyable. But I did notice that there's a threshold where the quality of the conversation begins to dip. And that bothered me. I don't I didn't remember that from before. Keep in mind, I've been drunk, you know, thousands and thousands of times growing up. And that was never something that, that I took into account. That at a certain point, like the social inhibition, it, it like it it falls victim to like a like a shitty conversation, right? Like, yes, it's easier to have a conversation, but the quality of this conversation is just trash. And as someone who really enjoys sitting around talking and sharing ideas and, you know, I don't like having the quality of the conversation affected. It's one of the reasons that I actually like smoking weed because many times it will improve the quality of the conversation tremendously. It improves your depth of thought. It alters your perspective and it makes things significantly more interesting, especially if you're you're smoking with someone who's an experienced smoker. That's typically what happens. It might slow your thoughts down a little bit, but they're, st- they're certainly still interesting. But with alcohol, I-, I didn't realize that there was this threshold where, the, again, the quality of the conversation just sucks. So that seems to be somewhat of a self-limiting factor that's a little bit built into the experience. So that was a new thing that I recognized this time around that I had never recognized before. Another interesting thing that I noticed is that I don't have an interest in being truly drunk. You know, there were many days after the wedding where I decided to continue the experiment. Um, You know, so it's over the next few weeks while Kelly and I were on our honeymoon and sort of after we had gotten home, um, there was a handful of times that I had tried, tried drinking and I I was experimenting with, you know, wine or beer or liquor, not all at once, but, you know, trying to see how my body reacted to certain things um, and if if the experiences were actually different. But what I found in, in every scenario was that I really don't have a desire to get drunk. There is definitely a limit that I have where it's like, this is enough of this feeling. I don't wanna go any further because I'm I'm scared of losing my inhibitions. I don't like the lack of control. That was an interesting one. The feeling almost trapped inside of drunk world, that was an interesting one before. I had never, I had, never had any desire in my entire life to pump the brakes on alcohol. It was always one drink leads to Two and two leads to 50 and 50 leads to a thousand and then my life's ruined, right? That was always like how how the progression sort of went. Um, But there is definitely a limit where I bump up against this wall and I go, huh, that, that's enough of this for now. And of course, another new thing is hangovers. You know, I'm I'm 31 now, so I'm not I'm not 21, but also, and I won't get into this in too great a detail in this particular podcast, but um, I've been on the carnivore diet for going on a year and a half now, and that, you know, alcohol is not not uh, allowed on that diet, but it also makes you extremely sensitive to it. So I found that beer doesn't go super well. Wine is kind of hit or miss, like white dry wines with very low sugar, low carbs. Um, and really, and this, this part sucks, 
but you know, clear liquor is kind of the best, which is what any true alcoholic really drinks, right? It always ends up with vodka every time. Uh, but unfortunately, vodka and, and lighter liquors are what sits with me the best. So I found that at least physically, um, that sort of gets into my body. I, I feel the best when I drink those and have the most minimal side effects, but I still get hung over. I get um, fat fingers are the number one thing that I that I find myself complaining about if I have any amount of alcohol. Uh, I feel my fingers swell up. My wedding ring gets tight. I can feel my, my watch strap gets tight. Um, so like localized inflammation is definitely a thing that happens, which is a little annoying. But as far as digestion and just processing the alcohol, not, um, not super problematic, but definitely something I have to, uh, to keep an eye on and keep to a minimum just for, you know, adhering to my own diet, really. Now, there are some, some things that are the same. There are definitely some things that I remember. I remember from 10 years ago, like experiential things that are, are kind of sort of still there. And some of these are really strange. So one of them is, and this is like a question I have for anybody watching. You know, there's a, this peculiar, very specific type of magnetism that I feel to alcohol. And I guess I would describe it as like being excited. You know, I, I do find myself in in certain scenarios, if I know that I'm going to drink tonight, there's like a level of anticipation in my mind where I look forward to it. However, I don't have a gauge to determine what level of excitement is appropriate. I don't know how other, how excited other people get, right? So if you drink now and you don't have a problem with alcohol and you and your friends are going out to drink tonight, you would have some level of anticipation, some level of excitement. You would look forward to it in some capacity. But I don't have, a, I don't have any metric for like how excited should one be in looking forward to an experience with alcohol. And so I've noticed myself thinking more and more about this. You know, when I feel any level of like magnetism towards drinking now, I wonder if it's normal. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that there's a little like childlike giddiness that comes up. But of course, I experience this with all sorts of different drugs. It's not like it's unique to alcohol necessarily. It's just like a like an excited thing that's coming up. It's like the same feeling as, as if I have a friend coming over and I'm like, oh, cool, my buddy's coming over. That'll be cool. It, it's really similar to that. And so I, I wonder like, like, how could I measure this? How could I gauge this? I don't know if I ever can. Uh, I think it's just something that I have to keep an eye on, like a lot of a lot of these things. But that's been an interesting one for sure. It definitely still has this magnetic attraction to it. And I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, to what degree is that normal to experience? I don't know. Now, I also have noticed one thing that that maybe somewhat of a red flag or at least some unique identifier to somebody who has had issues with alcohol before and that would be that even though I don't like getting drunk, I don't like crossing a certain threshold, I am interested in maintaining the buzz that I happen to have. So once I get to a certain level that is enjoyable, where the quality of the conversation is still preserved, but I'm not drunk, and I found, let's say, the relative sweet spot, I like to stay there. And exiting that space and going back down to sobriety, 
that I, I don't always want to do that. So what this ends up looking like is on a on a day. Well, I'll give you a good example. Went to a barbecue the other day um, with some Kelly's family. And I found myself wanting to basically stay buzzed throughout the entire day, which is interesting, right? I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's like my perspective is a little little weird on this one. Like, how normal is that? Like, it probably depends on the, the, the people that you ask. You could find people who do not have a problem with alcohol who probably do that, let's just say, all day on Saturday or all day on Sunday, and that's a regular occurrence for them. But for me, it, it was somewhat of a cause for concern that I enjoy maintaining a certain level um, of, of a buzz for a very longer period of time. And where that becomes problematic for me is when I think about you know, how much alcohol should I drink in a day? And you say, well, maybe let's call it three drinks. Well, three drinks is a certain level of, of drunkness, right? But if you, if you say, well, that level of drunkness is as drunk as I want to get, but I want to stay there for eight hours. Well, that's a very different amount of alcohol, right? Now you're drinking a very large amount of alcohol. You're just spacing it out over time. And navigating these waters is, is what makes this so tricky. And again, I don't have a a particularly strict metric on how to nail this stuff down. Um, so I don't know. These are some of the things that I've been working through in my mind over the last uh, few weeks and months. Um, and, and I'm trying to be particularly uh, observant. And I can say that's a piece of advice I would offer to anybody who decides to go down this road to reopen this door again, you know, is to be, what's a better way to say this? Don't decide what the outcome is before you have the information to support it, right? So I'm not here to tell you that this can be done. I don't know if it can or can't yet. I'm gathering evidence. I'm observing what happens, and I'm trying to be as, as intellectually honest as I possibly can with what I'm experiencing and what I'm seeing um, in my own life as I do this. And I don't have a particular outcome that I'm desiring. You know, if if the result of this experiment is that I still can't drink and, you know, something's still broken in here, hey, that's okay. Back to the drawing board, not a big deal. Maybe I'll open this this book again in another 10 years and give it a swing then. Um, and if the answer is that that I can can maintain this, well, that's cool. That that's I'm, I'm happy with that as well. Um, but but I do have a, a a guess. I do have a sneaking suspicion of what this is going to look like. I think a likely result of this experiment is going to be that I'm taking on a challenge that may or may not be worth doing, right? I don't think this is going to end in me going back to rehab. I don't see that as a possibility. This is something Kelly and I have talked out pretty extensively. I just don't see that being something on the table. Um, I, I think I would would undoubtedly quit long before it got to a place like that because I have I have a lot of shit to lose. I have a wife. I own a home. I have going on I don't know forty pets. Like uh, I have a career. You know, there's so many things that I am deeply unwilling to lose or to even have threatened that I really cannot see myself getting back into into a position where I would need to go to rehab. So I'm not particularly worried about that. I think my main concern at the moment would be that I've taken on a challenge that might not be worth taking on. And so think about something in your life like, what's a way to say it? Okay, let's stick with relationship analogy. That's probably a much better one. Um, it's a relationship with somebody that has historically gone wrong. It's an ex-girlfriend of yours at the moment, let's say. And it's never gone right before. You know, it, it always failed every time. And you say, let me give it one more shot. 
and a a courteous friend of yours might say, hey, buddy, listen, man, I know you love her, and I know you're really trying this time, but at a certain point, you call it, and you go, dude, it's not worth it. It's not where I know you're trying, but it's it's going nowhere, or it's destined to fail. It's just a matter of time and, and how it's going to end up happening. I think maybe that's the case with, with my relationship to alcohol, that it is in one way or another destined to fail, and if I'm able to maintain it, it requires so much additional effort and work on my part that it's not a relationship that is worth that amount of effort. I don't get enough out of it for it to even be worth the maintenance cost. To me, if this goes wrong, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a very high effort endeavor that does not give me um, enough of a reward, like the ROI is just fucking broken, right? So that's sort of worst case scenario for me. Now, best case scenario would look something like like a, a rewiring of my neurochemistry, right? That I'm truly able to restructure the relationship from the ground up um, and have a totally new relationship that I've never had before. I think that's also a, a possibility, but it seems to be the less likely possibility. Now, there is one other very strange thing that I've noticed. Now, keep in mind, I'm only, I'm only surveying here, you know, maybe on 10 to 15 occasions have I had alcohol, and many of those were one drink or two drinks. Um, and again, some of them were like, uh, like at the barbecue, for example. That was many more drinks over a longer period of time. But I have noticed one particular thing that, that I remember from over 10 years ago that I used to do when I drink. And that is if I am... If I am in any capacity alone, which by the way, I, I don't really drink alone. That's one of my rules. We'll get to those a little later. But let's just say we've been drinking and I have a moment where I'm alone. My thoughts will like leak out into my voice. Like I have a desire and this weird propensity to speak my thoughts to myself. It's like I'm talking to myself is what it's like, which admittedly, I definitely do that sometimes. I do that when I write um, on the computer. I will. I prefer to read things out loud. I prefer to say my thoughts out loud. I talk to myself when I edit video a lot of time. Um, I don't really know what that is, but for some reason, alcohol makes me do that. So I will have like an internal narrative that it feels like it leaks out of my voice. Like I can't really help it. I just catch myself doing it. So there's definitely some behavioral habits where it's like, huh, that's a thing that I do when this substance goes into my brain. Very, very peculiar, but that was a weird one to see the same very specific behavior emerge a decade later. Like, yep, still do that one. But as a whole, having all this drinking experience from way back in the day, 10 years ago, and then reintroducing the substance now, overall, I would say that it is it is still not familiar. It doesn't feel precisely the same, even though there are certain behavioral elements that kind of feel the same. Uh, my relationship to it doesn't feel the same. It, it feels a lot like, let's say you dated somebody 10 years ago and you meet up with them now. Well, you've both changed, hopefully, quite a bit in that amount of time. And so the dynamic, while there might be, there, there might be similarities there uh, from you guys now and then you guys 10 years ago, there might be some things that are familiar. You know, a, a huge majority of the context of the relationship has changed. And so that's been really cool to experience that, 
that at least I am so different. Alcohol didn't change one bit, obviously, but but at least I am so different that this no longer feels how it used to. So that's been really cool to experience. Now, I do wanna talk about a few safety precautions that I implemented before I even started drinking. And these were mostly things that I had discussed with my wife, Kelly, uh, because obviously she's gonna be the the you know most valuable source of accountability here. Um, and so some of the things that we discussed were different rules, different guidelines, like things that, that we should just draw a line at right now to make sure that this always stays in, uh, in some sort of relative balance. One of those rules is no alcohol in the house. And that doesn't mean we don't drink at the house. We've done that a handful of times, but more so it means we don't store alcohol at the house. Um, I've experienced this with, with cocaine before, and I haven't talked much about cocaine specifically on this podcast, but... It's one of those things where that's a drug I don't keep at the home. I also don't do it very often. But one of the reasons that I learned I don't like having a drug like that in the home is because it turns into this, <clears throat> this game. When I wake up every day, it feels as though I am confronted with the decision of whether or not I'm going to do cocaine today. And that decision is one that occupies too much space in my mind. The question occupies too much space in my mind. And I found that this is also true with alcohol. If it's here, well, then it's a decision of whether or not I'm going to drink. When am I going to drink? How much am I going to drink? Am I going to drink all of it or am I going to leave some left over? And that is undoubtedly patterned addict behavior, right? That's addict thinking for sure. And so I found that an appropriate distance between myself and the substance is one of the best ways to, to moderate that kind of thinking. If it's, you know, it's really just adhering to the out of sight, out of mind principle, and it definitely works. So I found that that's a line I don't want to cross. I'm not interested in crossing that line. You could call it a goal. You know, one day it would be nice to be able to have liquor in the house or wine in the house for guests or for whenever. But it's also not that big of a fucking deal to just drive to the store and buy that for the specific occasion. You know, you're having a barbecue, you're having friends over, you're having dinner at the house. Go get the bottle of wine, go get the beers or, or whatever people want to drink. And then when the event is over, the alcohol goes with it, right? Um, so to me, this seems like something I, I, it's just too easy to not do. It's too easy to not do. Um, so I like having that that decision removed from my day-to-day -day thinking. You know, if I decide that I do want to drink, well, that's a specific trip to the liquor store or to the grocery store to grab something. And that's a very different thing um, than just having it sitting around. So for me, that, that's been a rule that I plan to adhere to for sure. Another big rule, and this one is very specific to me, has been no drinking alone. Under any circumstances, I cannot drink alone. There's been one or two times where I've drank with friends. Um, for example, my buddy Joe, uh, who's been on this podcast before, Joe came over the other day and we butchered a couple chickens. And that felt a whole lot like something you'd want a beer for. So we went to the store, we got a four pack of beer, and we had two beers each. And of course, I was bloated for like three days after. So that one wasn't really worth it. But, um, you know, th that that was one one scenario where I drink not with Kelly, but almost every other time I've drank specifically with Kelly. And it's also we've discussed that it, it makes the most sense for me to follow her lead. So there have been really no scenarios where I say, hey, Kelly, do you want to drink? And then she's like, yeah, sure, let's go drink. It's way more so 
um, if she's in the mood to drink, then I'll follow her lead. But it, it's a lot less common that I'll make the suggestion um, because Kelly is most certainly not an alcoholic. So at the very minimum, if I uh, were to clone her behaviors uh, as far as her relationship to alcohol, I'm only drinking so much because she is not a heavy drinker whatsoever. So that's been helpful as well to just have someone who's lead that I follow and there was one or two times, actually, where I said, hey, do you feel like drinking tonight? And it was just a hard no. She's like, nope, sure don't. I'm like, well, okay, that's fine. You know, and so it's a, it's a nice exercise for me to grab the thought of drinking, the idea, the concept, and then to just very quickly let it go. Go, okay, well, never mind then, not a problem. And so that catch and release um, does feel like somewhat of a helpful exercise. One other weird thing that I have noticed, a helpful little practice um, that I've noticed is to voluntarily be the person who drives, right? Which is is nothing more than voluntarily taking on some responsibility, right? Well, I sure know that I'm not going to get drunk at this event or in this situation because I raised my hand early in the night and said, I'll be the one to drive the car. So just a tool that I like to keep in my back pocket. Um, and there's been a number of circumstances where I may have had this many drinks, but you know, I said I was driving, so I'm not. Taking on that extra responsibility has definitely been a helpful tool, and that's something that, that I something that I think I'll continue to do in the future. Now, I don't know if you agree, but to me, this podcast feels somewhat frantic. You know, I, I tried to make a make an outline for this podcast. Um and I don't know. I mean, it, it. I don't want this to be a one-hour justification or rationalization session because it's one of the things that addicts are, addicts are so particularly good at is finding the intellectual path to do whatever it is that they wanted to do, right? I don't want to rationalize myself into a position um, where I'm just doing exactly what I want to do and finding a way to justify it, right? That, that just feels like a very unhealthy thing to do. So I'm trying to be painfully intellectually honest and still, of course, leave the door open to the concept that this might not work, that this might not work at all, that this was a not a worthwhile path to go down. And I am still open to that idea. I am. But I think my desire to try this is simply rooted in putting my tools to the test. It's putting my my management skills, life management skills to the test. It's putting my own philosophy to the test as well. You know, are my beliefs strong enough and experienced and earned enough to hold up against something like this? Because undoubtedly they weren't before. When I was 18, 19, 20, 21 in my heaviest years of drinking, you know, my philosophy was fucking paper thin, paper thin. I, I couldn't support anything that I believed. And so it took, it was like flicking a toothpick tower to fuck with any of my core values, right? They weren't supported by anything. And so it's no wonder that when when the the vulnerability that comes into that structure from something like alcohol, you know, when that's introduced and you have this flaw in the structure, well, it's no wonder that things just begin to crumble and melt off because, again, none of this stuff was at all supported by any, any earned beliefs. And so 10 years later, I undoubtedly feel as though I've earned many of my beliefs, many of my philosophies, many of my, my tools and skill sets. I've earned them. I've spent a long time um, working on becoming the person that I am now. 
not to say that I'm done. I'm still a fucking idiot, depending on the on the specific topic. Um, but with that said, you know, it, it feels a lot like I have a very full tool belt. Maybe not full, but but a much more well-equipped tool belt. And I want to put it to the test. I, I, I wanted that test. And I don't know if that's healthy or not. Because taking on tests that arguably don't give you anything if you pass them, well, what's the point of taking the fucking test, right? You could you could certainly ask that. It's high risk and minimal reward, and perhaps that is a healthy way to look at it. Um, but I don't. I wanted to do the test anyway. I just wanted to do it. So again, for the twenty seventh time in this podcast, it is not my goal to recommend that anyone watching this video who may have struggled with alcohol in the past immediately drink again. Please don't fucking do that. I hope that you spend the same amount of time thinking about it that I did, which was like, again, six to eight months. It was a very, very long time. Um, and you know, I, I hate I hate the black and white nature of this conversation sometimes. Like you are an alcoholic or you are not an alcoholic. It is not that fucking simple. For some people it might be. I have definitely heard stories from very intelligent, articulate people who say that if I have one drink, then in six hours from now, I find myself in a hotel room with a hooker doing all this wild shit. Like, for some people, it's like that. But it was never like that for me. It was never so all or nothing. And so while this water is very muddy, um, I, I wanted to revisit it and just sort of open this back up again. But I can't speak for you. I just can't stress that enough. I, I, I'm an individualist, man. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. But I do hope that some information in here uh, was relatively helpful um, in just sort of unpacking what this looks like because it's been an interesting and a fun experiment uh, for me to run. But I, I still I still rightfully feel like I'm on thin ice and I intend to, to keep to keep that perspective for quite a while. I don't know how long I will run this experiment until I might call it. But, you know, that's one of the reasons I held off on this podcast um, was because I said, man, it's too soon for me to claim that I know anything. I can't possibly claim that, that, that I'm no longer an alcoholic or that you can beat this. Like, how could I make that fucking claim already? And, you know, it, it might be another 10 years until I can have a, a, um, an appropriate amount of data to make some sort of claim about this experiment. And I do think there is one catch-22 to this whole thing, and that might be that even if I am able to maintain this, if I am able to moderate my relationship to alcohol and find a balance that resembles anybody else who has a, a healthy relationship to alcohol, one thing that still sort of lurks in the background here is that if I were to have some sort of catastrophic life event, let's say losing a loved one very close to me, let's say something um, devastating to my finances, like, like some, some horrible catastrophic life event that I now have the window to alcoholism propped open, right? The door is cracked open, right? And I think my my susceptibility to falling back into that pattern of alcoholism, well, that's undoubtedly higher. I know I can go there. I went there before. And even if 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 that won't happen naturally, there could be some circumstance uh, that forces you in that direction. And I know I am susceptible to abusing alcohol. So while I have no prevailing traumas at the moment, um, that's one thing that I'm hyper aware of and that I'm putting a lot of thought into is that even if I am able to manage this, if life throws me a curveball, well, 
I've got one of the wrong doors cracked open here. So I would have to be very proactive um, about what I do in a scenario like that. But this is all very easy to say when, again, you don't have any prevailing traumas or difficult shit that's being thrown in your face necessarily. So I don't have anything to escape from at the moment. And life isn't fair, and maybe one day I will. So that's certainly something that sort of looms in the background here. Um, I don't know what to do about that other than to keep it in mind. All right, I think we're going to call it here. Bit of a shorter one today, but I hope you guys enjoyed some of these thoughts um, about drinking again. I could certainly do an update on this episode, and I would also like to do it with with two people. One, another alcoholic. That would be fun. With somebody in recovery, preferably. Um, that would be very interesting to do for sure. And also with a normie. I love talking about this shit with people who don't have any any problem with any substance or being addicted to any substance. They don't have the pull. They don't have the magnetism. That's always fascinating to me because I want to see, like, how do you look at it? Like, what's your experience with drug A, B, C, um, and sort of hearing how, how they look at it? That's always very interesting. So, yeah, if you guys have any questions at all, uh, please feel free to leave them in the comments section, or you can send me an email at allinwithadam at gmail.com. Remember, you can call or text the hotline, leave me a voicemail, and I'll feature, feature you on a future episode. And again, my, uh, one of my favorite recommendations um, for this podcast. If you want to help, if you want to support, I don't need your money. Please just share this episode with someone who you think uh, might find it interesting. And of course, I always recommend texting it to them directly and say, hey man, this was for you specifically. It reminded me of you um, and I wanted you to check this out. It's always one of my favorite ways uh, to share information and podcasts specifically. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of All In With Adam, episode 15. Love you guys and I will see you next week. Bye.